The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Um, we'll be reading from Acts chapter 5, from 12 to 42, and that's on page 1095 in the Bibles. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as the E passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the man be put outside for a while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Tedius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. 
His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, that's almost really enjoy these long narrative passages of scripture with my personality type. I love getting captured into a really good story and then looking at the characters involved and finding out what truth is in there. Others of you are more of like, I want the Psalms and Proverbs where I can read a verse, get a truth, and then walk away and not have to spend time deciphering all the different stories that are involved. And so today, this passage was really life-giving for me, and I hope that I can then in turn turn that over to be a life-giving passage for you as well. And so we've entitled this teaching um, today uh, a, really more of a question, where did it come from? And so I hope that we can begin to make a, a case through this story of how they could be flogged and how they could go away rejoicing. Um, because that doesn't sound like two things that generally go hand in hand together. I never walked away from any type of corporal punishment or any type of punishment as a child. Like, yes, my mom and dad love me. Um, it doesn't normally go that way. Usually I go to my room, I cry, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, how did that happen? But yet now looking back, I'm like, wow, that was a really good thing. But in the moment, they were, they were literally beaten. Now, a side note to the teaching. If you've noticed anything in the first five chapters of Acts, they have no consistency of how they describe Jesus. Like in this passage, he's referred to as the name. Um, they're, they're still trying to make sense of this resurrection and who Jesus is. And so a lot of the terminology that we have, that we've adapted into our church life over 2,000 years, they are still trying to figure it out. So we're going to touch on that a little bit today. But know that over the next several weeks as we continue through Acts, we're going to be able to find more and more of them working it out. And then we can see 30 years from now as Paul is writing the churches, how he began to solidify in a stronger way specific names associated with Christ that gave the early church meaning. And so let me pray, and then we're going to talk about where it came from. Father, I thank you for this chance to look at Acts 5 together. And Lord, I pray that no matter where we're coming from, some of us are coming from joyous weeks, others of us have had heavy weeks, but Father, we are saying that our eyes need to be fixed on you, and so we need your help through our joys and through our sorrows to fix our eyes on you. And Father, I also know that there are people in the room that don't yet believe in Jesus, and we want them, Lord, not to feel awkward in our singing, in our prayers, in our announcements, in our teaching, but Father, we want them to find here, through the power of your Spirit, the truth that we've come to find in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, even aside to the teaching today, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would help reveal the truth of Christ. And Father, for those of us that have believed in Jesus for a while, Father, we want to mature in our faith. And so, Father, would you bring maturity to us? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you know that in my family's story, we, um, before we came to Baltimore to start the gallery churches, um, we had a chance to spend the last half of 2007 in New York City. And one of the things that we wanted to take advantage of because we felt it an honor to be able to be there for such a long period of time was we wanted to take in a Broadway show. Well, you don't take children to some of the Broadway shows, and so we had a five-year-old and an eight-year-old at the time, which I can't believe that now I have a 19-year-old and a 15-year-old, but a five-year-old and an eight-year-old at the time, and we were like, what Broadway show, number one, would I enjoy? 
that a five-year-old and an eight-year-old would enjoy. Um, and so people recommended The Lion King, and so we had a chance. Some of you were like, yes. Um, and so I went reluctantly. I'll just have to be honest with you. Um, I went to The Lion King thinking that I had wasted a lot of money. Um, but from the opening drums to the way that the whole orchestra was around in the room and the orchestra pit under the stage and the costuming that was beyond my wildest imagination, I was captivated. Now, just imagine the Lion King setting and the captivation and that there's literally shows twice a day, almost six days, seven days a week, and people are constantly coming to and from, and the, the, the directors, the cast are packing out this place week after week after week after week because everybody wants to come see Simba, right? And to just continue to be amazed by that impassionate story. Now, there are a lot of street performers in New York, right? A lot of people that are doing their own Lion King presentations on the sidewalk. And generally, you can find a couple of people that are interested in watching. And so on your way into Lion King, you can be entertained. And on your way out of Lion King, you can be entertained. But as long as it stays there, people are okay with it. Now imagine what would happen in New York if the street performers outside of the Lion King started to rob the Lion King of attendance. People on the way in were like, you know what, this is so good, I don't want to go in there. And they started to stay outside, and before long, the majority of the people were staying outside watching the street performers and not going into the Lion King. How long would it take for those that were in charge to then come to the local authorities and say, we want those street performers removed or banned from being right out in front of our studio or right in front of our theater? If we can, that's probably the closest representation I can give you guys of what's happening in Acts 5. There's a small group of people, Peter and John and others, that are teaching in the porches of the temple. And the temple is the show. It is the place where the holiest of ground is. It's the place where heaven and earth came together. And it was the place that everybody should be inside. And a lot of times we think of the temple much like our churches that are small. Even if you've come from larger suburban churches, there's a lot of space in our churches that... um, that, that we feel like, oh, that's pretty big, but that's not the temple. The thing I can relate it to locally is if you take the land that the Amity Bank Stadium is on and the land that Camden Yard is on and make a big rectangle out of it, that's the temple. That's how big the temple is. So there's porches everywhere. And so imagine a small group of people gathering on one porch and every day the numbers of people listening and watching and participating are growing. Now we can begin to see why the Sanhedrin are becoming more and more agitated because they were the ones that were feeling like everything that was happening through these early believers since Pentecost was an in-your-face to them. They were the ones responsible for representing God. They were the ones supposed to be talking about Yahweh. They were the ones that people should be coming to listen to, and their numbers are drastically decreasing. And so and what happens to men when they lose their audience? They usually start acting very immaturely, right? Um, and then think that now we're going to be able to draw attention through other immature ways. Um, and so the Sanhedrin's now not seeing God in what's happening. And now they're even saying, wow, you're falsely accusing us of killing Jesus? Like, there's so much happening here in this particular passage. 
But the one thing that I think that we need to keep in the forefronts of our mind is that Acts 2 is still being expounded upon. There is so much that these people in the first century around Jesus' resurrection that they needed to learn and they needed to be taught. And so if I could just relate it to us a little bit, they have found in the teachings of the early church what they wanted to Netflix binge, if I could put it that way. They literally can't get away from another episode of teaching. They're gathering every day and learning. I can almost imagine the disciples have the letters of Torah open, and they're going through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they're showing them how God has been faithful throughout all of Israel and how in Christ all of these miraculous things are taking place. And so, so much is being expounded upon through the ancient scriptures and through the extraordinary new events concerning Jesus Christ. So if we could allow ourselves, as we go through the book of Acts, to realize that Jesus is king and the Holy Spirit is getting involved and people are now learning what Jesus being king really is. If he's truly Lord of all, this is what happens. And so Acts is beginning to map that out for us. It was a really bold gesture, I feel like, for Luke, who's writing this letter to his friend Theophilus. Um, to include in this passage of scripture the healing story because the healing stories generally cause frustration for me and I shared this with you on May the 13th when I taught because there's so many places and times in my ministry where we've anointed people with oil we've prayed over them as the scriptures tell us to do but yet cancer still won right where we feel like we still lost somebody to death and there's been other moments where we felt like our prayers have been answered and life has been brought into very sick and, and dark places. And we even had a wedding that I did in May to a young lady who um, fought cancer and is a survivor because of the prayers of the church and the people in her life. And so why is there not consistency? Why are some healed and some not healed? And you come to passages like this, and, and I would love for these passages to tell us the truth. And to be honest with you, there isn't. There's, there are so many things that are still a mystery to how all of this takes place. There's a strange unknown quality to why God does it here. And then if we were to jump to Acts 19, we find that it's Peter's shadow in Acts 5, but it's Paul's handkerchiefs in Acts 19 that are healing people. And these two anomaly stories are in the book of Acts, and we're like, okay, where are the shadows and where are the handkerchiefs today? That's what I want to know, because I would love for people, when we're heading to church, to want to line the streets so that when we're on the way to church, they're like, wow, if we could just get their shadow to fall on us, we would be healed. And I, I, when I find myself in these stories, I'm like, wow, I, I, I want to see God do this. I want this to happen. And then why are some saved and some not saved? And or, or when I say that, I'm talking about their physical salvation. It's like, why are some people that are left in prison and others that aren't? Like the, the characters in this story, they were in prison and on the first night they were released. But later on, we're going to find out that Paul was in prison for two years. Wasn't he supposed to be starting churches all around the Mediterranean on their way to Rome? And so now we're finding, wait a minute, in this story, in this chapter, the people getting out of prison was so important that God sent an angel and mysteriously took them out. But in a few chapters, it's better for Paul to stay in prison. We know that Paul was ultimately loved by God just as much as he loved Peter. 
But yet, why would Paul be in prison for two years and Peter be released? If you find it, I'm asking a lot of questions I really have no answers to because there's some great mysteries to some of the things that are happening. But the thing that I want us to understand in this healing passage and why I think it was so important for Luke to include it is because God doesn't just talk about restoring creation. He's capable of doing it. I want you guys to capture this. I think I have it on a slide for you, so I want you to marinate on it. I want you to just let it set in your soul just for a few minutes. Because the promises of God are true. But I also want you to understand that it's not that they're true. He's actually capable of keeping all of his promises to us. But so often what ends up happening is that things come up and we're like, wait a minute. You let Peter go, but you kept Paul in prison. You let all the people in Jerusalem get healed, but yet you let my father die. And so in the midst of the tension of the mystery of God moving and creating, his showing his capability and promising his, his truth, we get lost in the middle sometimes and get distracted because we want everything to already be set, but we're in a tension, what we call a gap. And this gap is between the present age and the age to come. And so Acts is the very early on beginning of the gap. We are in what Jesus referred to as birth pains. And for those of us that have actually had the privilege and the honor to see a child come into the world, from conception to birth is a beautifully painful experience. It's generally more painful for the woman. And depending on the man and depending on the woman and how she treats the man, it could be joyous or painful for both, right? And how the man responds to the woman. And then as the child grows and begins to kick and punch and elbow every internal organ that a woman has, and then begins to make its way out, we understand that it is a joy and a sorrow to have a child. There are joys and sleepless nights. There are joys and indigestion. There's all these different things that impact us, and that is the illustration of the gap between the present age and the age to come. There's got to be an understanding for that in us because God is capable. God is going to keep all of his promises, but we need to continue to allow our devotion and our holiness to be reminded about where we are going to end up in the age to come. So there's a lot of things that are happening here. And so the fact that so many people came to Jerusalem and were being healed, it wasn't just about a sudden, sudden burst of miraculous healing energy. It was about the church being obedient to the head of the church, which was Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so what was happening is this chapter is a visual example of what really can happen for us when we let Jesus be seated on the throne of God and the power of his spirit to come in us. And we don't lose sight of that because what can happen is things beyond our wildest imagination. So what ends up happening when the church continues to move towards the undeniable power of God? What we end up finding is, is that in our present day culture, churches start schools for kids that can't get education. Churches started educating women in the first century, which was something that women weren't allowed to do back in the first century. And so churches get involved in medical clinics. Churches get involved in freeing people still trapped in slavery today. 
people begin to find in the church that there's um, help for housing, that there's help with money, that there's all the different types of substances and bad habits the church gets involved in, the power of God starts to move through it. And when we begin to look at what was happening in the narrative of Acts 5 and in the chapters to come, the church was becoming a place where a new kingdom life was being lived out, and it brought physical and spiritual blessings to the people around them. It wasn't just a place where, say, we just pulled up a chair and we just sat down and we were just like, okay, now teach me something so that I have knowledge. It was so life-changing that even in the midst of all of this, that this angel that came really didn't even have a name for it yet. I don't know if you picked up on this, but he just says, go back into the temple and tell them about the new life. It wasn't called Christianity for a few more chapters. It wasn't, they really struggled, like I mentioned earlier, about naming who Jesus was. They were still waffling between him being God and Christ and Savior and Lord, and they call him the name, and there's just, they're, just, they're just overwhelmed with the reality that things were new and that there was new life that they were supposed to be walking after. And so this angel in verse 20 says, go stand in the temple courts and tell all the people about this new life. Now I can see why there's churches in New York and Colorado and all over the place that are calling themselves New Life Church. Why get complicated like the gallery church? (laughs) Because it's about a new life. The only problem is, is that we're stuck in our old life and we're struggling to get the difference between our new life and the old life. It was a strange way to put it, but I think it's very simple for us to look at this because up to this point in world history, nobody lived this way. They weren't living this way. What was the way that we began to see that's happening, this new way of life, this life that was joyous for them? What was happening is they were figuring out what it looked like to live as a family. People that weren't blood relatives were learning to live from a common purse. People that were without houses were getting houses. People that were without food were getting food. They were developing a new love for the table. And what it meant to come together regularly and break bread together and, and, and drink from the cup together to remember who Jesus was. And so this new life was about a new table. It was about what we do with our property. It was about what we did with our time and what we did with our energy. And it was about learning. It was about a shared belief in Jesus Christ. And so in Acts 5, there's so much happening that they were daily doing it, and it was so important that they continue doing it that God sent an angel to let Peter out. Because it was so important for the early church to continue to move forward. And from the very beginning of the church, faith was very important. Faith was something that needed to be talked about. Faith was something that Peter and them were gathering daily to explain to them. And so why is it so important for us to be taught? Because our faith wanders in the dark. It it goes off. It it doesn't, doesn't stay where it's supposed to. When we disconnect ourselves from the teachings of Christ... 
when we disconnect ourselves from the thoughts and the truths about who Jesus Christ is, we are constantly tempted to wander away. And when you walk around in the dark, you stub your foot on furniture. You could fall off a cliff if you're wandering at night. Right? There's so many things that happen to us when we wander. And so that is why I feel like the disciples were constantly in Acts 5 teaching them because people were filled with all kinds of half-truths and total untruth. And so what does it look like for us? So the, the, the Sanhedrin had this zealous or righteous indignation. Like they were fired up and emotional about everything that's happening here, so much so that they would flog and beat these men. But yet I also want you to understand that it seems like these men had a righteous fire in them, a zealousness in them, that even in the midst of that type of abuse, they continue to do it. So why would this new life bring that type of zeal to the early church? And here's the question. Where did it come from? And if you and I can ask ourselves the question every day, where did it come from? I think you and I will find ourselves more prepared. Don't ask yourself before you go to bed. I know that my teachers in high school told me that I needed to study right before I went to bed because your brain would then marinate all night and you'd do better on your tests the next day. I never found that to be true. Right? But I did find that when I got up early in the morning and I looked over my notes, I did better. Okay, that's how it worked for me, all right? But that's not all of you. Some of you barely wake up in time to take the test, let alone to get up early enough to study for the test, right? You'd rather stay up all night. But you and I have to have the discipline of remembering every day we wake up what is true and right and noble and just and think on those things. And so I feel like that part of what's happening here for, the, for Peter in particular is that he knew where it came from. And where did it come from? It came from a loving Heavenly Father. Listen to what Peter says here in verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Where did it come from? God. And I don't want that God word to be just the trivial, trite way that we describe God. Because in so many ways, that God can mean things to so many different people. And different people have different definitions of who God is. And I just want you to know, in this passage of Scripture, it is the God of Israel. It is Yahweh. It is the I am of I ams. It is the one true God. It's the ancient of days that we sang about. It is when you look at who this God is, it is that God that loved us so much that he sent us Jesus Christ. And so when Peter and the other apostles were in prison and they were freed by an angel, they had the strength to step back out because they knew where their help came from. They knew where truth came from. They knew what truth was and who truth is. And if you are finding that you're struggling in the darkness, it might be because you don't know how to answer this question. You might not have enough faith to believe that Jesus is alive. And today is a day that no matter how much faith you have, it could be as small as a mustard seed according to Jesus, but all you have to say is that Jesus is alive and that he loves me. And then, holy smokes, the porches of the temple are now open for your instruction. It's a way for us to learn. It's a way for us to grow. It's a way for us to continue to mature, as I mentioned in my prayer before we got started. If it's not from God, it won't last. That's what Gamaliel stood up and told them. 
he knew that if they were killed immediately, it was going to be bad news for the whole temple. And so he's kind of being tongue-in-cheek, but there's so much truth in this. I just want you guys to know, if you step in, you will see that it is true. And if it is from God, it won't fail. If it is from God, every promise will come true. If it is from God, it will never end. And so as we begin to try to make sense of all of this, when we see that our faith is literally a gift, the mercies of God on us, then when we start talking about repenting of our sins, returning from our evil desires, letting our minds be purified, and we start talking about that and we know it's from God and it's not just from some preacher that's standing up in front of you telling you that repent or perish, but you know that it's it's the love of God, then we don't have a visceral response to being convicted of our sins because we know where it's coming from. The creator, the sustainer of life, is lovingly telling us how we have been separated from him, and he wants us back. So how could that be bad news? How could it be harsh? It has to be in love that some God would do that, that the God would do that for us. That's why I feel like even after they were beaten and flogged, they got up and cheerfully went away. Because they knew that in order for people to believe that Jesus was alive, that they had to be beaten. And they were like, okay. That takes an incredible amount of faith. If we told you guys today before we were leaving church, in order for you to represent Christ well, we are lining you up to be flogged. I guarantee you that our attendance would drastically decrease. But there are some of you that are going to endure mockery because you came to church. We might not be physically beaten for our faith anymore, but you are emotionally abused and mentally abused because so many people don't know who Jesus is. They think they know. They think they know what the church is supposed to be like, but the church has not been a great representation of Christ. So people have a false perspective, and so they hear you go to church, or they hear you believe in Jesus, and because they have are filled with half-truths or untruth, they take it out on you because they don't know truth. And it is our responsibility with joy in our heart to endure the mockery so that they can continue to see in us that it is true, that the tomb is empty, and that Jesus is alive, and that he loves us better and more in a, in a miraculous way, wonderful, than anybody else could possibly ever love us. So, so why? Why do we keep walking out our faith? Because we know where Jesus came from. We get up and move and we put the armor of God on like Ephesians tells us to do every day because we know where it came from. A father in heaven that loves us lavishly. Let's pray.